0: Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by Courtroom Sciences, a podcast for the Defense Bar about the intersection of science and litigation. My name is Dr. Bill Kanaski and we're going to talk reptile today. And this is really an intro to reptile. Uh, it baffles me that we're 10 years into this phenomenon, and they have over $8 billion of settlements and verdicts, and still... Even to this day, many defense counsel don't really understand what reptile is. They think they know what it is, but they there's really a lot of misconceptions about what it is. Uh, fortunately, uh, we accidentally got our hands on a lot of the reptile training material and have uh, gone through it uh, line by line, word by word, page by page. And have really broken this down in several articles Um, And have debunked the theory and really redefined it for what it is. And those papers can be found on the CourtroomSciences.com website. Uh, I think we have about five really solid reptile articles for you that breaks down the entire system. And really tells you what it is, but also what it isn't. There's a lot of salesmanship going on here. And the way they sell it is really not what's going on and that's the one of the main problems until you understand a problem truly understand it it's really hard to defeat the problem so i like to play uh, an audio clip from some of the reptile uh marketing um strategies that they have this one so it was invented by uh, don keenan very successful plant fraternity in atlanta georgia and his counterpart dr david ball who is a jury consultant out of the raleigh durham area and this clip is of dr david ball um, selling what the reptile is and this is the reason this clip is one of the reasons why so many young plaintiff attorneys are signing up for this training because it seems once you listen to this it seems like you cannot lose if you follow this system so let me play this clip and then let's 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 break it down
1: Reptilian advocacy is a way to get right to the reptilian brain. In any situation where a decision has to be made, and that decision can affect me, juror number three's, well-being, security, safety... The reptilian brain takes over, and the reptile never loses. It's been used heavily in marketing. It's been used heavily in politics. And when we started doing this, we thought, maybe it will work in advocacy. And it has succeeded way beyond anything we ever thought it would do. I mean, just... It's still staggering every day to see what it does. It's taken cases that at one time would have been what are called soft tissue, minor injury, soft tissue cases that may have been twenty or thirty, forty thousand dollar cases and the verdicts are coming in at two and three hundred thousand dollars for the same cases. because when you get to that part of the brain, when you put on a trial as an opportunity for a juror to make their world better for themselves, what's in it for me? juror number three. When you get there, you've got the jury. You've got the jury right there. And they appreciate it because they walk out having accomplished something not only for justice, not only for a person who's been hurt, but for themselves and their kids and their grandkids.
0: Okay, so that's what you're dealing with here. And uh, thankfully, we can prove scientifically that 95% of what Dr. Ball just said is completely false. Um, we've debunked this in our papers. There is no such thing as the reptile brain. That's a theory from the early 1970s about brain function that's completely obsolete. However, it's a pretty, it's a pretty sexy sales pitch. It's a uh, neuroscientific gift wrapping of sorts, but that's not what's going on here. But the one thing that David Ball said that's absolutely correct is that $50,000 cases are now being settled or verdicts are coming in at 250 or 300 thousand dollars he was absolutely correct and that's really what's going on here and the problem is is that proportionally it's gone off the charts and so what you're seeing now is the 1 million dollar case they're now getting 20 million for and then the 20 million dollar case they're getting 70 million for so that is the one thing he is correct um regarding the reptile and that's that's really what's going on here it's a it's more of an economic sure. philosophy. It's not a brain philosophy. All that, all that stuff he said about the brain. Uh, D- David Ball's not a psychologist. He's certainly not a a, a neuropsychologist. Uh, Dr. Ball a got a PhD in um, <clears throat> in theater art, and a lot of people laugh at that, but he's an expert storyteller, and that's how he trains plaintiff attorneys: is how to give the better opening, how to. Connect with the jury, and he's really, really good at it. But the sales pitch, it's you know, the reptile never loses. Well, here's the good news it, while it has been succeeding, we have been spearheading the charge um, to defeat it, and we've defeated it just about every time we've gone up against it. And we've put that in our papers the the anti reptile formula. I I will go over that with you today. But here's another clip from Nick Rowley. Nick Rowley went through. The Reptile, he's very close with the Reptile folks. Nick, uh, Nick went on a radio show a couple of years ago. Don't ask me how he got this spot. But he describes his philosophy of litigation, and this is actually what's really going on with the Reptile.
2: Corporations and the insurance industry have been eroding our constitutional rights, taking away our right to a jury trial, limiting a jury's ability to determine what damages are for individuals for years and years and years, and putting propaganda out there into the world where people think that lawsuits are frivolous. And it's just not so. Frivolous lawsuits don't make it to court. I've been practicing a long time. I've handled over a thousand cases. I've tried well over a hundred jury trials. I don't see frivolous cases. What I do see are frivolous defenses. Most often times, 99 plus percent of the time, Frivolous defenses being pushed by insurance companies in the good name of the insured policyholders who are being sued because the insurance companies won't pay. And the juries never get to hear that it's an insurance company who's hiring the insurance defense lawyers, who's hiring the experts, and refusing to pay the medical bills and treat the injured people and their families fairly. That's what's going on here. That's why I formed this firm, and that's why I do what I do.
0: So that is really what you're going up against. Uh, Nick Rowley, he just described, in fact, there's a whole chapter on the book about this is a full frontal assault on the insurance defense industry and corporate America. And that's what they're really teaching these plaintiff attorneys when it comes down to it. And it's working. It is working. They're taking full advantage of that. And I'm going to explain to you what you need to do to not get burned by their system. But let's, let's start with the misinterpretations of the reptile theory because I hear this stuff every day and it's, it's, it's not true even 10 years later. Uh, the first one is uh, plaintiff attorneys that do the reptile method, their goal is to scare the jury into awarding high damages. That is not even completely true at all. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. They don't want to scare anybody. They want to empower jurors to give them the strength to write that big check at the end of deliberations. It has nothing to do with scaring the jurors at all. Another one is, well, this is just golden rule 2.0. We've seen this for 50. This is just a golden rule tactic. Actually, no, it's not. There's an entire chapter in the reptile book addressing this issue about how it's not golden rule. And if you follow Motion and Limine saying it is, they pretty much give the formula on how to get around that with the judge. Another one is, if we tell the judge and the jury about these fear tactics from the reptile, they will be offended And they will side with the defense automatically. Um, No, most judges are completely oblivious uh, to this topic, which is another head-scratcher. And uh, telling the judge about it may not get you very far. And the jury has no earthly idea what you're talking about. So this tactic really uh, would be ineffective. Another one is that, you know, this is a big sham. This is just not even real. Um, There's no way this is really happening. Well, $8 billion later... And now it's in it's in every state, every single state in the United States. Uh, this this has spread like a disease and is no longer, uh, it's not a sham at all. Um, it won't spread to my venue. Well, it already has. It already has. And yes, there are venues where you see more or less reptile, but it is coming to your venue. It's already there, and you're going to have to be prepared uh, to deal with this. And then finally, my favorite, I'll just file a motion eliminate to ban this. Based on our statistics, you got roughly a 2 or 3 in 10 chance of getting that motion in, in lemonade uh upheld. Because, again, the bench is not up to speed on this. And a lot of the judges essentially say, you know what, um, rather than grant this motion, uh, I'm going to rule on this stuff uh, throughout the trial. And so that's going to teach you, uh we'll talk about this at the end, is you better learn how to object uh, early and often, because uh, that's going to pr- preserve your appeal. So let's talk. So where where in the world did this come from? So what happened was, in the mid two thousands, Ball and Keenan were working together, and they were doing mock trials. They were doing focus groups, and what they found out was while they were winning on liability in their jury research, they found like the damages were going lower and lower and lower, and that was really concerning them. So what they did was. They did some extra mock trial and focus group research to figure out what in the world is going on. Why are people awarding less money over and over and over again over this you know, three to five year period? And here's what they found. This is right from the book, ladies and gentlemen. Number one, what they found is that sympathy was no longer effective. Completely ineffective. And the reason for this was because Gen X and Gen Y jurors started to saturate the jury pool at this point, and that sympathy card was not working for them. In fact, Gen X and Gen Y jurors have no sympathy button at all zero. It is not in their bloodstream, it's not in their DNA. And so they found out that the sympathy card just was not working anymore. And then, secondly, what they found out was they thought that corporate America and the insurance defense industry pretty much poisoned the well. Uh, and they thought that, or they found actually that juries were very uncomfortable to award high damages because they didn't want to hurt corporations. They didn't want to hurt the hospital or the, or the local company in their community. And that was a real problem for Ball and Keenan. And they figured out after these two key findings, well we have to start trying our cases different. We have to work them up different because we are kind of behind the eight ball right now. And so they're what they call the antidote to tort reform toxicity is what they call it. And their their couple goals were number one, they wanted to not instill fear into the jury but quite the opposite. They wanted to reduce fear. They wanted to reduce fear and to empower the jury to what they call, quote unquote, doing the right thing, which would be protecting the community safety, decreasing danger, and doing that by awarding excessive damages. So they're not trying to scare jurors or instill fear. They're going to use fear, and I'll tell you who they're going to use that with, but certainly not the jurors. The other interesting uh, antidote here is they want to make it clear to jurors that being a juror in a civil lawsuit was just as important as a criminal lawsuit. And so if you ask anybody on the street, you know, what's the purpose of... Uh, being a juror on a criminal lawsuit, everybody says, "Well, you know to protect the community you know if you have an accused killer or, or an accused uh, burglar or robber uh, the 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 role of the juror is to protect the community. But then, when you ask the same question about civil litigation, jurors don 't think of it that way they don 't think of it as protecting the community, so one of their main adjustments is to in jury selection opening statement closing is to sell this um principle to the jury that civil litigation if you're a juror in civil litigation you you have a huge role in protecting the uh community safety and they figured out they had to educate the jurors that uh what the jurors goal was was community safety not the jury instructions not the standard of care but that community safety had to be really the top priority for the jurors and they've been largely successful in doing that. And so they have two phases of attack. You have the discovery, and we're going to talk about that a lot today. The discovery strategy. Priority number 1, destroy defense witnesses at deposition and videotape them. We're going to talk about this a lot in this podcast and follow podcast about the techniques that they're using, the the very manipulative reptile techniques to get witnesses to crash and burn on videotape. And then when at mediation, there's an entire chapter on mediation. Trust me, plaintiff attorneys don't want to go to trial, particularly you know, mediocre and younger plaintiff attorneys. They want to get easy money. They want to get it fast. And so if they come out with a full frontal assault against the witnesses, they figure that when they go into mediation, they're going to get their money because there's no way that the client, the defendant is going to want to try the case. Then finally, there's a trial strategy. We'll talk about this in a different podcast, but they completely redid their voir dire strategy, completely rebuilt their opening statement strategy, and then completely changed how they questioned witnesses at trial. But again, that's for another podcast. So the use of how does the reptile theory use fear? Well, it has nothing to do with the jurors. Who does it have to do with? It has to do with you. It has to do with the defense attorney and the client. And they have this term that they use in the reptile training materials called head danger. They want to create head danger. And you've heard this before. I want to have that person's head on a platter. Or you've heard this phrase, you know, when when, when the boss finds out about this, heads are going to roll. In other words, they want to create tension between the defense counsel and the client whether that be a corporate uh, in-house counsel or a claim specialist to get them both scared to death, to get them both fearful of, hey, we better settle this case or one of us is going to lose our job. And it's been working. It's absolutely been working, particularly when you see some of these emails flying around from plaintiff's counsel, essentially baiting these defense counsel and these clients saying, hey, if you take this to trial and you lose, A, You're going to be plastered all over the Wall Street Journal and USA Today and social media, but B, your boss is not going to be happy. Let's not do anything stupid here. Settle the case, give me my money, and then everybody walks away happy. Again, that's worked as well. And then secondly, again, full frontal assault on the insurance defense system. They know what the system is. And listen, no one wants to talk about this. We've said this in other podcasts, but this is how it works. The the insurance defense system is highly reactive and not proactive, meaning they don't want to spend money on a problem until it becomes a problem. And that's really what the reptile system is, is make enough of a mess by the time the defense figures it out. It's going to be too late. And we've all been through this before where an insurance company will not give you authority for that that maybe high-level expert or extra expert or that focus group or that mock trial or that advanced witness training because they want to save money on the front end, and that's a claims person's job. Well, the indemnity folks down the hall, they're the ones that are going to be in trouble if there's a big verdict. So they're taking advantage of this system between the claims and indemnity folks and They've, they've, they've made quite a mess uh, with this, but they're attacking the system. And again, th- I think that they, they've been largely successful in discovery. So how do you beat these guys? Well, let's go over the, let's go over the formula and how to beat them. Number one, what is their priority? Destroying defense witnesses. So what is the defense's top priority? What does it have to be? Training the witness to sustain a reptile attack, meaning your fact witnesses, your corporate reps, your PMKs, persons most knowledgeable, and particularly if you have a safety director in whatever industry you work with, those people are going to get reptiled to death. And if they fall for all the traps on videotape, you're going to be in very, very rough shape going forward. Thankfully, uh, me personally, along with my colleagues at Courtroom Sciences, we have invented and implemented an absolutely killer system that trains these witnesses from a cognitive emotional standpoint to identify the reptile attack, to give the appropriate responses that will not allow them to get trapped and to really frustrate and anger, uh, the reptile plaintiff attorney. So that I really, I really like that because it's now happening all the time. But if your witness is not trained appropriately, they are no match for the reptile technique. Finally, the reptile folks, including the entire plaintiff attorney bar, okay? They're doing mock trials and focus groups early in the case, not late, okay? A late mock trial or focus group does not help you very much because if you figure out, hey, I, if you're a claims person or you're in-house counsel, you figure out, wow, I've got a loser here. We're going to get hit for 30 to $50 million, and it's three months before trial, what are you going to do? There's no time to make adjustments. But if it's two years before trial and you know you have a loser, well, now we can do something about it. So the our adversary, uh, the Reptile folks, they're doing their mock trials and Focus Group to figure out, okay, which case is the winner, which case is the winner. They find out. You have to find out which case is the loser so you know how to ha- handle that file appropriately. So again, throw the first punch here because if you... If you wait till the ninth round of a twelve round fight to start throwing punches, that scored card is not gonna be in your favor. And again at trial, they've changed their voir dire, they've changed their openings, they've changed their uh, cross examination of witnesses, different podcasts, but I want to really focus on discovering what they're doing in discovery because again, it's it's been really effective and it's important to understand you know, when do you have a reptile case? Well you start seeing complaints, right, complaints and interrogatories that have language like safety, danger, risk, harm, unnecessary risk, needlessly endangering. That's their two big buzz buzz phrases, unnecessary risk, needlessly endanger. danger. Uh, those are things that tell you, hey, I have a, a reptile case. Now, it's not always going to be. In the complaint. So, you also have to do your homework. Talk to each. See, the, the, the defense bar doesn't talk to each other. How do I know I have a reptile attorney on the other side? Well, do your homework. Ask around. That's very, very important. Now, let's go into an example of how, how this works. So, I'm going to play you a very brief uh, deposition clip of a very well prepared witness, not well trained. Okay. They've been well-prepared on what? The substance of the case. They have not been trained from a neurocognitive standpoint to identify and deal with reptile questions. And I want you to listen to these responses.
3: The pharmacy must fill prescriptions with the proper medication to prevent injury or death to the general public. Yes. Filling a prescription bottle with the wrong medication needlessly endangers customers. Yes filling a prescription with the wrong medication needlessly endangers the community and the mental members of the general public? Yes. And the community is needlessly put in danger, correct? Yes. And you would agree that this must never needlessly endanger patients in the community by misfilling a prescription? That's yes. a safety rule? Yes. By misfilling, mis-, mis prescriptions, violated the standard of care. Correct. Check to the form. Yes. They violated the safety rules. Yes. Check to the form. They needlessly endangered.
4: Miss.
0: Check to the form. Yes.
3: And they needlessly endangered the general public.
0: form. Yes. Game set match this witness got every single reptile question wrong boxed himself in and then admitted to breaching the standard of care so now this is a farm d pharmacist who's been in the industry for over 30 years he's the corporate representative of a major pharmaceutical uh chain retail store that you see on every corner in america who spent three days being prepared for this deposition and absolutely gave away the farm it very without even putting up a fight because he wasn't fully prepared to, to deal with the reptile assault. And it's very, very sad that that happened because in that particular case, they have a really good causation case. They have a really good causation case. But because that questioning happened, it's on videotape, there's really nothing they can do. They're now stuck with that testimony, and now they have zero leverage. So that case ended up settling for millions of dollars more than it was actually evaluated for because the witness was not adequately trained, for, again, from a neurocognitive standpoint, and just pre- prepped on the file, and that's what happened. I mean, here, here, here's a surgeon. Same thing, well-prepared on the file, not really well-prepared for reptile.
3: would agree with me that you should never put a patient at unnecessary risk? I would agree with that. Okay. Standard of care and medical profession dictates that a patient's safety comes first, correct? Yes. You always want to put a patient's safety first in any medical procedure. Yes. And you, ever, and you never want to put a patient at risk of any unnecessary bodily harm or risk, correct? Correct. If you can avoid it. Right. If you can take reasonable means to avoid putting a patient at risk of serious injury or death, you could al- You should always do shows. so, correct?
2: Objective form. You can answer.
3: Um, yes. Okay. And you would agree with me that in this particular procedure, it was unnecessary to use general anesthesia? We didn't use general anesthesia. Okay. You would agree with me that it was unnecessary to use any form of moderate to deep sedation? No. You, you do not agree that that was unnecessary? We did use general anesthesia. Okay. What did you use, sir? IV sedation was the anesthesia employed what was, with, with a local. Okay. Who was responsible for the patient's well-being and safety while she was unconscious without you in the room?
4: I'm checking the form.
3: Anesthesia. And that person's name would be Deviation from the standard of care to put someone at unnecessary risk. Is that correct? Yes. And you would agree with me that you put at unnecessary risk by subjecting her to this unconscious sedation when it was wholly unnecessary in this procedure? Object to the fourth. Yeah. Wholly unnecessary is a broad statement. She could have been very, very anxious and needed it just to simmer down, just to become less agitated. Um, you don't know that. That's not the case here, though. But I don't. you're right. I don't know, don't know that for a fact. Right. And you would agree with me that there are other less invasive or less yes. sedating ways to deal with that? Yes. Okay? So back to my original question. You would agree with me that you deviated from the standard of care by placing her at unnecessary risk using unconscious sedation when it was unnecessary in the performance of this procedure. Objective form, yes. And you agree with me that those those risks could have entirely been eliminated by the use of a simple local anesthetic uh, to perform this procedure in a relatively pain-free environment? Drastically reduced. Correct. I don't have any
0: further questions. No further questions. Gee, I wonder why. And that's because the case is now over. And it's completely unnecessary. And, again, another very intelligent, smart witness who got bombarded with reptile questions and fell for every one of them and then admits to... Deviating from the standard of care. It's, it's really painful to watch and listen to. So, so what's really going on here? Well, there is a science behind the reptile method, and this is what courtroom sciences and myself personally have broken down. It's really the sequencing of the questions. If you notice... The first several questions are what we call general safety rule questions or general danger rule questions, uh, which come in the form of, you know, patient safety is always first or consumer safety is always first. And everybody just automatically says, oh, well, yeah, of course, that's actually not the case. Okay. And then the reverse, the danger rule, well, you want to avoid danger at all times and you want to decrease risk to your patients or your customers. And everybody says yes to that, but. What does safety really mean? What does danger really mean? These are largely undefined statements. And the problem really is all of these industries, whether it be medicine, trucking, construction, products, regardless, uh, all of the training that they get, particularly safety training, it's drilled into their head that safety is for Walk into any hospital. Walk into any hospital. There'll, There'll be a banner somewhere in the lobby that says, we put patient safety first. Guess what? No, you don't. You never have, you never will. Trucking company, I walked into a trucking company two weeks ago in their lobby. We put, you know, we put safety first with with training our drivers. And I'm thinking, no, no you don't. It's something that's important, but it's not first because if it was, that truck would never, would never leave the yard. If patient safety was first, you'd never prescribe medication. You'd never do surgery. Okay. A C-section is not safe. Okay. Cardiothoracic surgery is not safe. A lot of these medications have side effects that can be risky. Okay. But that's not how these people are trained. They're trained safety first, danger last. And that's where the reptile attorney is taking advantage of the employee's training. And what that does is it gets an automatic agreement to that and i'm going to tell you how to answer these questions here in a second but the answer can't be yes because now you're set up for disaster now that's going to be followed by specific safety and danger rule questions which lock a witness in to an inflexible inflexible position and these will tie conduct to outcome and so the question will be well if you put patient safety first that pretty much you know drastically improves the odds of a a positive outcome correct doctor and he's going to say yes and if you if you if you violate safety rules and you expose your patients to unnecessary risks and dangers well that's going to lead to a bad outcome now isn't it and that would be below the standard of care and they're going to say yes and the reason why is that they said yes to the general questions first and now they have to say yes to these follow-up questions so now the witness is locked in okay so now the the specific fact questions come up and now it's okay well let's let's talk about this case oh well you didn't do this you didn't do that you could have did this faster you could have did that faster you could have taken you could have made an alternative choice here and the witness now has to say yes cuz these are facts so they'll go right to the facts of the case right to your policies and procedures right to exactly what happened in this case and pretty much show that well here are all the safety rules you agreed to and you violated the safety rules and then as you just heard in the videos then come the negligence causation and standard of care questions and now the witness is forced to essentially admit that they breached the standard of care so this is a highly neurocognitive manipulative attack that can only be prevented by rewiring the witness's brain. And, and that's what I do for a career. That's what we do at Courtroom Sciences. And we have a great system to do that. And none of our witnesses get reptiled, but it's, it's a pretty time intensive process to rewire their brain so that they don't get caught in these uh, various traps. Now, these plaintiff attorneys are getting a lot of training on how to do this. And so, even if you just tell your witness, "Well, hey, don't say yes to these questions," they're going to say yes to those questions because their brain is pre-wired to do so. Um, so, what are we going to do with the whole issue of safety? What are really the correct answers? Well, is safety the top priority? Is it always? Well, no. The answer is no. The answer is well, it's one of our many concerns. It's one of our it's one of our many goals, right? And another way to answer these questions are, well, can you be more specific? You know, safety in what regard? What are you, what do you, what do you mean? Safety, what circumstance are we talking about? And a lot of these follow-up questions can easily be answered with, well, you know what? That really depends on the circumstances. Not in all cases. Well, you know, sometimes, but not, but not every time. And it's really important that the witness be trained to do that. And so many witnesses are, are really not trained to do that. They may be told to do that, but they're not trained to do that. And that's that's something very different. And it's hard because you have a lot of people in their industries. They've been working in the industry for years and years and years. They have so much safety training, again, particularly in medicine, trucking products, so that when this stuff comes up, they really they really struggle, they really, really struggle to say no to those questions. They really struggle to say, well, it depends on the circumstance, because their supervisors or their safety directors have pounded this into their brains day in and day out, and they feel bad for not saying yes. They really feel bad for not saying yes. And part of me doesn't blame them, part of me does not blame them, because... Again, they've been they've been trained to do these things, and I, I find it to be very to very be very sad. And then the problem is like with the two videos and audios I, I just showed you. The witness really doesn't know they've screwed up. They actually think this is the most dangerous part. They actually think they're doing a good job. These witnesses think that they're actually answering these questions correctly when in reality they are losing the case and they just don't know it. So. Again, much of this can be prevented if they go through, again, more of a neurocognitive training program, a training program that breaks down their, and that's what I do as I'm a neuro, clinical neuropsychologist. I break down witnesses from a cognitive emotional standpoint, and that's the only way to get around this. So now I'm not going to leave you here scared to death. I'm going to play you a couple clips where the witness went through the training, they and they did the right thing, and so now you're going to hear two pretty vicious reptile attacks, and listen to how the witness handles it.
4: Let me, let me see if I can narrow it down a bit. Let's talk about foreign substances on the floor. Okay. Okay. That, you would agree a foreign substance on the floor may be a hazardous condition? It depends. Listen to my sentence. Mm-hmm. Do you agree that a foreign substance on, a, on the sales floor may represent a hazardous condition to customers and associates?
0: Not necessarily.
4: Okay. Are there occasions where a foreign substance on the floor may represent a hazard to customers?
1: Maybe, it depends.
4: Uh-uh. I said are there some examples where a foreign substance on the floor may represent a hazard to customers?
0: It depends.
4: Have you been told to say it depends to all my questions?
0: No, sir, but when you are a store manager and you know how many different realms there are to everything that you deal with on a daily basis, there's just so many different circumstances you could go through. Are you trying
2: to be evasive to my
0: questions? No, sir. This is a true story. In this deposition, she said it depends 49 times. 49 Let me repeat that one more time. She said, it depends, 49 times. Guess what her answers were during her mock deposition? They were all yes. They were all yes. But then she went through the neurocognitive training. She understood finally what was going on, went through more mock depositions, and was literally perfect at the end. And this is a true story. The plaintiff attorney, this is from Atlanta, Georgia, packed up his stuff after an hour and 45 minutes and left the dep, angry. Angry because he's going off of a script and he had to have yeses he didn't get his yeses and he moved on here's another one this is from california so you're going to hear a lot of objections because that's how they have to do it in california but this is a city engineer and again same these safety rule questions listen to how the witness the well-trained witness that's been through the neurocognitive training listen to how he handles it
4: This is a very general question so what is the overall uh, purpose of having street signage Big and ambiguous, Lax Foundation calls for speculation, incomplete, hypothetical. I would say the overall purpose is to inform the user on the street of information they need to make a decision. Is that for purposes of public safety? same objections. It could be. Okay. Is public safety the number one most uh, important thing for the Lax Foundation calls for speculation, incomplete, hypothetical, vague, and ambiguous. It's one consideration. What's more important than public safety? Same objections. We don't rank priorities with public safety. There are other considerations. Okay. well I understand that. I'm asking you a different question now. So my question is... The purpose of the pedestrian warning sign is it to alert motorists of pedestrians. Big, ambiguous, calls for speculation, and complete hypothetical. I, I would use a different word. I would say make, make them aware of. Okay. So the purpose of the pedestrian warning sign is to make motorists aware of pedestrians. I would agree with that. Okay so uh, why would you remove that sign well as i stated before there was no significant pedestrian activity so the sign wasn't appropriate okay and the, ultimately the overall goal of that sign is to prevent vehicle collisions right Lex foundation calls for speculation hmm. incomplete hypothetical also calls for an expert conclusion No, I disagree. So that pedestrian warning sign has nothing to do with attempting to prevent vehicle collisions? Same objections. It's also argumentative. Hmm. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that either. Okay, so does the pedestrian warning sign help at all to prevent vehicle versus pedestrian collisions? Black's Foundation calls for speculation, incomplete hypothetical calls for a expert conclusion. I don't know that I could know the answer to that question. Well, you're the city engineer. So from the city engineer's standpoint, you don't know whether a pedestrian warning sign helps prevent vehicle versus pedestrian collisions? Same objections. That is a general statement, and I can't make a statement so general because each accident needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Okay, so again, I'm asking you about that sign. So the pedestrian warning sign, does it help prevent vehicle versus pedestrian collisions? Blacks Foundation calls for speculation, incomplete hypothetical, calls for an expert opinion. I would say not necessarily. Okay, so if you qualify as not necessarily, that means it could help prevent vehicle collisions, right? Same objections, each accident needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis i am not going to make general statements like that i'm not asking you about individual vehicle collisions i'm asking you about the sign and why you put a sign somewhere or you don't have a sign somewhere okay so i'm just asking right now about signage so again the pedestrian warning sign helps prevent vehicle versus pedestrian collisions. Yes? Same objections. I disagree. Okay. Um
0: and so the attorney gives up. So, as you can see, a lot of redundancy, but our witness was trained to handle this, and this witness, I worked with this witness for 2 days, and it was very difficult because of all of his safety training, but he was quite perfect. During that – and there's no such thing as a perfect deposition, but that one was, was was pretty darn close. But again, it was the level of training that he received that was all neurocognitive-based. It wasn't legal training. Now, yes, he got a lot of preparation, preparation um, on the file, on the documents, on the policies and procedures, but there was really no um, – uh, until I got there. Really no neurocognitive training to, to help this witness out, but he took it in and then by the time he got to deposition, he just saved his client a lot of money. So that was a very smart investment by uh the client to protect themselves economically from the reptile attack. Now this case going forward, plant has nothing. Got nothing from that deposition. Got nothing from that and that's the goal of the deposition. It's not to win. You can't win the deposition, but you want the plaintiff attorney to walk out with nothing. And as you can tell, they're going from a script. And when they don't get yeses, the entire deposition breaks down. And so this witness is well-trained and did very well. Now, let's, I do want to talk about trial because at trial, when this stuff happens, you had better object because if you don't, the, the first is... Uh, Regadalo, I think was the name of the case which went up on appeals in California and the appellate court uh, their opinion was yes all of this is completely inappropriate however you did not object contemporaneously when this was going on therefore the verdict stands and that's pretty sad because defense attorneys are trained well I don't want to object a lot because then the jury's going to think that I I'm weak or that I'm scared well a, I don't think there's any evidence of that. As a jury psychologist, I've never found evidence of that. But B, what the appellate court said was you have to object contemporaneously with the reptile maneuvers. Otherwise, y- your appeal's not going to go very well. But guess what's going to happen when you object most of the time? Your Honor, I object! And why is that, Mr. Reed? Because it's devastating to my case! Overruled. Good call! So (laughs) that's kind of funny, but that's really probably what's going to happen, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You need to put in a solid objection, get it on the record. And this is from Steve Fleischman from Los Angeles, uh, probably the number one um, appellate reptile attorney in the nation. Get that objection on the record so you can fight another day. But again, don't be surprised that your judge does not cooperate, but that's really not the point. That is a lucid,
4: intelligent, well thought out objection.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. Overruled.
0: It's gonna happen. Don't get bent out of shape, but that's just the way it goes in this industry and with most judges. Hopefully, your judge. Hopefully, the bench will figure out what's going on. But it's been almost eleven years, and I don't think that they have. Uh, I've heard a couple of stories where the judges have figured it out. They've granted motions. They have sustained objections. But it's really few and, and far between. So we're approaching the 45-minute mark. Let's close up this podcast. I hope you found uh, that to be useful. I will come back and do additional podcasts on how to handle uh, rehabilitation with a witness in a reptile case, uh, how to handle trial testimony, how to handle opening statement. What is the reptile opening statement and what do you need to be doing to offset the reptile opening statement? I got news for it. It's very different than you think. And then most importantly, which again, this does not get a lot of attention, the reptile voir dire. What are they doing in voir dire? What adjustments do you need to make in voir dire to outmaneuver plaintiff's counsel? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Bill Kanaski. here. We will see you next time. You've been listening to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by CSI. For more information, visit courtroomsciences.com.